Hello and welcome to Station to Station. This is Michelle Bacon, and I will be taking you behind the stages, venues, and studios of Kansas City's musical landscape. My special guest today fronts the Creepy Jingles, a mix of psych and garage rock with witty puns and catchy melodies. Jocelyn Nixon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Yeah, how you doing today? I'm doing good. I uh, worked only to, from like eight to three, so I had a pretty easy day today, and I'm going to rehearsal after this, so, and I get to talk to you now, so I'm having a great day. Yeah. Nice. Well, yeah, thank you for joining me. Um, for anybody who hasn't been able to tune in to this podcast before, I, I like doing this um, mainly so we can find out more about great artists in Kansas City who are making music and who have a passion for the arts. Um, just finding out more about their backgrounds and their careers and their involvement in the local music and arts scene. So Jocelyn leads the Creepy Jingles. Her first band was the Abracadabras back in the late aughts before moving to Austin and having a band called English Major. Moving back to Kansas City, what, how many years ago was that now? 2015, I believe, 2014, maybe. Okay. Well, I met you years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, I think it was when I was in Drew Black's band, right? Yep. You and Drew were buddies, and, and then we met again when you moved back, and I, I can't believe it was that long ago that you moved back, honestly. It doesn't feel that long ago either, but I, I've started to realize, like, time goes much faster now that, like, once you cross that 35-year-old uh, threshold or something, you just sort of... Yeah, yeah. I have read and listened to a few interviews with you, but none of them really go back into, like the early, early, early days, you know, just as far as like, so you grew, did you grow up in the KC area? I was born in Independence, but I was raised in Blue Springs, Missouri. That's where my childhood home was, 806 South 18th Street for any historians out there. And it is, uh, it, it was, you know, a quiet town. It was, it was very quiet, a nice place to grow up. Um, you know, I had a lot of kids in the neighborhood. Um, but yeah, it was that, that house in Blue Springs and, uh, on the North side. And then whenever I was in high school, I lived uh, on the South end of town, which went to Blue Springs South high school. That's when I started to get the bug for songwriting, probably my senior year of high school. Cause I, I remember I kept trying to convince everybody to write songs with me because I didn't think that I could do it on my own, not having any sort of like guidance or teacher or anything, how to do that. Um, but no one would. And I didn't really like mess with it until maybe my freshman year of college. And then I just sort of like, once I started doing that, I, I couldn't play guitar at the time. And my, I would partner up with anybody who could play guitar that was a friend, and uh, I would just try to write songs with them. And then eventually I got sick of trying to have someone else interpret my ideas and decided how to teach myself how to play guitar and piano. Nice. And the rest is history, Michelle. Did you do a lot of writing before you started songwriting? or? Yeah, I was always like creative writing courses 
all the way probably through early elementary through like junior high. I mean, I was actually got a creative writing scholarship at Southwest Missouri State University, but I decided not to do it. I, I dropped out of school because I knew I was going to be a songwriter. And for some stupid reason, I dropped out at the time and I was like, I don't want to focus on driving back and forth from Springfield because I had to work every weekend. I couldn't find a job in Springfield. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to work on this. And it took me a lot longer to actually put all that stuff together. But yeah, I was probably writing all through like uh, school. And then before that, I was like an artist. So I would draw cartoons and was actually in a, cart a college cartooning class uh, when, I was in when I was 10 years old. Wow. But for some reason, just completely stopped drawing. My skills have not gotten any better since probably from high school. I haven't really improved much because I just wanted to connect with people. And I figured that writing and singing and performing was like the perfect marriage of everything that I really wanted to do. So I started focusing more on that. Mm -hmm. You know, I asked about the writing element because I would say that you're the words, the lyrics in, in your songs are, I mean, that's kind of a, that's just a hallmark of what the Creepy Jingles is and what you've done as a songwriter, you know, on top of the catchy melodies and stuff like that. For me, all, I was also an English major. I got a creative writing degree, which I haven't done shit with uh, in a few years, but, you know, it's still something that I, I love when I find local artists, especially who are doing that, who are being witty and, you know, like a lot of your song titles have a lot of great puns in them. I appreciate that as a fellow former creative writer. <laughs> well, good. I, I, I write lyrics for myself, but after that, you know, I want other uh, writers to enjoy it. Like I'm the kind of person that when they listen to music, obviously it's the 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 hook first maybe and the beat and then you get into the melody but like the thing that really always kept me coming back to listening to those songs again was uh the emotional depth of the lyrical content or the intelligence and, and uh, the turn of phrase and like that kind of stuff got me going back and i always wanted to write songs like the people that inspired me by putting those little like nuggets or Easter eggs for the people that are paying that close of attention. Because if you're not paying attention, you're going to run by it and you're just going to think, Oh, it seems simple, you know? And uh, like Paul McCartney's really great as far as being a musician. I think he caught a lot of flack. People thought, Oh, Paul McCartney's kind of a twee writer because he makes everything look so seamless. You know, I mean, everybody recognizes his greatness, but they also go, oh, he was kind of twee in comparison to John. And I'm a John fan, but like Paul made everything seem so seamless. And to me, that was always the goal with writing songs is putting as much of myself as I could, all my different interests, all my different experiences, all the things that fascinated me uh, from culture and history and trying to weave it into a giant tapestry of something that someone could uh, look far away, look back from and step back and go, oh, this is the whole picture. But then when they go in, they find uh, layers to it. And that was always the challenge and always the thing that excites me about writing songs. Yeah, and that's that seems very apparent in what you're doing with the Creepy Jingles now. I feel like it's kind of this 
it kind of combines the ideas that you had from the Abracadabra as an English major, which I listened to some of the songs you sent me from that band today, and I hear a lot of Beatles influence in that one. When you were younger and starting to get bit by the songwriting bug, like what were the artists that you were most drawn to at the time? When I was a kid, honestly, like uh, when I was a kid, the first thing that I heard that really like got me excited was the monkeys. My dad got me a monkeys tape for Christmas, uh, or I asked for it because he used to watch Nick at night with my grandma, who was a, a huge supporter of me. She's no longer with us, but like, I remember that memory of like spending time with her watching the monkeys and I was all excited about it. And I loved the comedy and I love the colorfulness and alien world that like that time period really had. And, um, I just remember asking for the tape and my mom and dad got me the tape for Christmas and I was excited about it. But I remember one night my dad got a sore throat, which is what he calls it whenever he wants to drink beer. <laughs> he got a sore throat and we went to the liquor store and it was a cool, cool experience though. Cause I remember it, he put in magical mysteries. Like, I know you like the monkeys, but this is the band they're trying to copy. And I was like, okay. And he doesn't like show me early Beatles stuff. He puts in Magical Mystery Tour, which is the craziest thing I'd ever heard. Yeah. Six years old or whatever. And it just, it blew my mind. And it almost kind of scared me because it was so, a song like Strawberry Fields, which is one of my favorite songs ever, was so alien at the time. Uh, I was just like, yeah, I think I, I think I want to do this, you know, and I didn't even think about the Beatles anymore. And I grew up and I think I was listening to Bare Naked Ladies because Stephen Page is an amaz amazing lyricist. And that's what I really keyed into with them. And then I listened to Boys to Men and all kinds of things yeah. like through like junior high. And I was a dork, but I love that stuff. And then uh, you know, when I got to high school, I, I think I didn't like get back into listening to the Beatles until my friend turned me on to uh, Rubber Soul. We were listening to Kid A and Rubber Soul. And I was like, why haven't I been listening to the Beatles? This is like the craziest, coolest record I've ever. And I had that same experience years later with the same band. Mm -hmm. But it was a rubber soul as an adult or young adult versus like magical mystery tour as a, as like a child. Uh, and you'd think you'd want to get those in reverse, but it was like perfect. And so I, I think it's uh, easily said that I was definitely inspired by like the Beatles uh, from a melodic color standpoint and uh, Dylan as a lyricist. And I wanted to be at the way Bowie made performance art. I don't think that I'm there with where I want the stage performance to be, but that's my goal. And and that kind of making everything sort of stand up on its own end as individual pieces. You know, when you're like looking at a song, a lot of people just like, it's just the song. But to me, it's the music production. There's the melody, there's the words there is the performance of it there's the presentation of the record like everything is an opportunity to express yourself in that moment and as i become more comfortable and confident in myself i love puns that's why i put an effort into making the words or making the titles puns because that's just an aspect of who i am that's my personality if you hang around with me 
I will make those jokes all the time and they're inadvertent and they just kind of spill out of me. My mind is always scanning for play on words and things. So it was just another way for me to sort of insert, inject authenticity of who I was into my music. Yeah. I Uh, I just want to go back to that. The first Beatles album you ever heard was Magical Mystery Tour, which gives me a little more insight into your musical mind, too. I feel like that's one of the last Beatles albums I probably was introduced to, you know? That album is so, it's full of color and it's full of like that psychedelic kind of thing that Creepy Jingles has going on. That's really cool. Yeah, um, definitely uh, influenced by the 60s bands and, uh, you know, color and hook and lyrics. And to me, it's like, I always felt like those artists great but I always wanted to sort of have a hodgepodge I was like I want somebody approaching lyrics the way Dylan did but I want it disguised as a pop song right because Dylan understood that like okay they're listening to the these songs I can make this something else and the Beatles kind of knew that and kind of took it well they did because they were huge success but it just feels like there needs to be that with me is I want, I want to get my foot in the door with that pop song. And like, that's, you know, that's like the surface personality, like, hi, how are you doing? Thanks for letting me in. Now let me talk to you about your extended warranty on your car or whatever. Right. You have to have something that's accessible that people are going to listen, that people are going to want to listen to whether they're paying attention to, like you said, the lyrical content or not, they need a hook to draw them in, which I think you do a great job of in your music, but it's not, it's not what you're expecting necessarily. Yeah. It's, it's gain the accessibility. Yeah. And then once, once you're there, then I've got a different agenda. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm going to you like, think about things that you might not want to think about, mm-hmm. which is important to me because like all art shouldn't make you feel good. Right. It's it's a unique expression of some some someone's, you know. Everybody has their own individual perception of things and who might deny the observer their truth, right? But it's an opportunity for you to be able to lean into something to talk about things that like we don't want to talk about because we need to, so we can like grow from that, you know. At yeah. least I'm going to, but I'm processing it on my own end different subjects or things about myself or talking about things that I'm seeing and just processing it. And then hopefully other people take it and run with their own processing of whatever it means to them. Totally. And that's the beauty of music, you know, like for, for the artists, it's, it is about self-expression and maybe processing things. And then for the listener, it's really whatever they can glean from it, from their own experiences.
I would love to start talking a, b- a little bit more about your band. So I found out about you sort of through the Abracadabras. I wasn't really in the scene yet. I think you all had, you would probably move to Austin around the time that I kind of started getting into the scene. Um, but yeah, tell me a little bit about that band. So that was, I, I, I lived in Blue Springs, as I said, and went to Blue Springs South. When I was a senior, I think my brother was my either like, a, I think sophomore. And as I was getting ready to leave, I think I'd already been, it was maybe my senior year. I remember my brother introducing me to Colin Roush of the Shy Boys at an Applebee's. And I remember just uh, him like, yeah, this is Colin. He's a musician. And he came over to the house one day and, you know, I showing him some songs and he wasn't really uh, writing a ton yet, but he was super, super talented then as he is now. And um, I was like, oh, I think we can work really well together. And, you know, we just kind of started, uh, I would write my songs and Colin would write his songs. And eventually it became a thing where, you know, we had enough of it together and we were working together and we had a good partnership going that it was me, him and uh, Kyle, uh, his brother. And they were younger than me. So I was kind of older and um, I was probably a brat at that age. I know I was a brat at that age, but like we, we got along well and we had the similar influences. We were, you know, sort of touched by the uh, same artists um, to do what we were doing. And it got us to get together and play. And, you know, they had already been like playing in the jazz band and the Chiefs band, um, their dad, Kent, is a great jazz player. Their mom is a great piano player, teacher. It was just kind of a, a nice situation for you to grow up with people that you enjoyed uh, to hang out with and make music together. And after a bit of time of playing as a three-piece, we didn't pay, play for a three-piece very long. I remember we played a show at The Brick. Uh, way back when in 2006 I think and then Colin and I were talking one day and we're like man we just need to this needs to be able to do more than what we can do right now with three piece me on guitar I'm more of just a rhythm player and play piano and I was like I just really want to sing and put down the instrument because I wasn't very confident in myself at that time as far as my playing was concerned because I was playing with two great musicians and we ended up bringing in uh, Travis and Wayne, uh, who were both guitar players, because Wayne, because he could sing, uh, we knew he could play guitar, but we also knew Travis, great guitar player as well. And uh, we couldn't make a decision because we, we, we couldn't uh, not have both of them. So it became like uh, from a three to five piece, almost like overnight. So, and then we played shows probably from 2006 to 2009 uh, as a group we released an album called be still be cool uh, which I still think has some really good songs on it Um, I think it's quite ambitious for a band's first record and um, after that I moved to Austin this and I worked with some friends Andrew Twinter uh, who was in It's Over. He played drums. And my ex-wife. And uh, let's see, 
Then there was uh, Anna Hilburn and Abby Sims and Josh Coons. And we had this sort of like little band that we played a, a bunch of shows in Austin. And then the divorce happened. So it ended up just being like a few of us left and everybody ended up leaving. And Anna and I finished the record and renamed it English Major, which was just my songs. And, you know, uh, those guys played on it and they did a great job. Anna added a lot of awesome guitar and sang to it. And she's a fantastic artist as well. So I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by talented musicians. And uh, when it got time to move back, which we talked about, I had taken like three years off from the stage or so because I came back and I knew that like after my breakup with my ex-girlfriend, I was like, okay, now it's time to sort of transition. Uh, She kind of kicked me out of the nest and said, you're never going to be happy unless you transition. So I did. And then after a few years, it was like, I'm tired of not playing on stage. Um, I was kind of tired of the self uh, exile and decided to get back out there. And I had, I've been writing songs for 10 years. I have a ton of songs that I've been stockpiling. So now I'm just slowly getting around to like putting the groups of them together that work the best with each other and uh, put together creepy jingles with Nick Robertson and Travis McKenzie, who I played with in Abracadabras and Andrew Woody on bass, who's been a a great friend for many, many years. Creepy Jingles, you put out your debut EP in 2019. Is that right? We put it out in 2019. Yeah, 20. May 2019, I believe. Yeah, and I do want to, I want to go back for a second. So Abracadabras was your first band and that was around like 2006. And I find that interesting just because most of the people I talk to started playing in bands when they're like way younger. And so like, you and I are similar age and I started playing in a band. I think my very first band was, I think we started playing out in 2007. So I think you and I, you know, kind of both joined bands around the same time. And I always feel like, I don't know if I'm like, maybe I missed something not starting when I was younger, but, but on the other hand, I feel like I, I can be more professional and I can also be more myself because I didn't start doing it when I was 12. And so nobody's like, not to say this is for every single artist, everybody does it differently. But like, for me, I probably would have been like, if I would have gotten into some situation where somebody was controlling what I did as a musician or something, then I probably would have just like gone with it. And who knows what that would have done for me as a musician. Do you ever think about anything like that? Yeah. uh, It was sort of like a, a slow burn, you know, it was like, there's a lot of marinating time uh, with getting into actually doing this. Like it it had been in my mind for so long that I wanted to be a songwriter uh, and everything just sort of like was very, very slow. It's been a late bloomer, you know, in the sense that everything kind of was like very slow and deliberate, but like, I just wasn't putting all the pieces together and it just kind of slowly came together when I got the right group of people around me. But when I was younger, who knows, I, I might've, you know, pissed it, pissed it away because I wasn't mature enough. I mean, I certainly made enough mistakes as a kid when I was with the abracadabras and I wasn't, you know, like 
taking care of like honoring who I was and myself. So obviously that leads to a lot of like pain and, you know, internal bullshit. Um, but just being a, even younger than that, like, uh, I would have certainly shit away the opportunity quite quickly. I'm <laughs> Yeah, but like you said, you know, doing the ruminating on it for a while and and being more deliberate about it, you know, it's like then your artistry, I, I think, lends itself to just being more purposeful. Well, I was talking about this with Drew, I think, before. It's like, uh, I'm proud to know that, like, we're not just kids in, like, coffee houses anymore. Like, I am going into my 40s. I am still doing this. And it feels like... I don't know. I don't know what age it is, but like when you, you made my feel like it feels like you're a lifer at some point. It's like, well, and I'm, I'm just going to keep doing this forever now because like a lot of people, you know, have, have their music career or whatever in their twenties or in their late teens. And then they just stop and they get normal jobs. And it's like, I'm still trying to juggle this uh, carnival career uh, on top of, like you know working a nine to five and you know trying to take care of myself as a single adult you know so uh i almost take more pride in it now that i'm holding on to that and it does feel like we talked about you know oh we're getting older but those are the things that like keep me young you know i'm getting to do you know shows and play with uh, talented people and hang out with friends you know it's it's a good excuse i feel like we have a lot more fun than uh, a lot of normies out there Oh, no, offense. no offense to the normies, but we do have more fun than you. <laughs> That's one of the things I love so much about being around other musicians, because we're all like, we're going after our passions, you know, regardless of what that looks like, whether we're trying to go out and play a bunch of shows and get bigger name recognitions, or even people who are, you know, just like playing for fun on yeah. weekends, you know, it, it's like we are still fulfilling some part of what I feel like is deep. It's deep within me, at least. Yeah, I mean, I actually tried to walk away from it. When I was leaving Austin and I was coming back to Kansas City, that's why I took three years off. Like, But it was definitely connected to me not healing and being honest with myself. And when I realized, okay, this is, it's because like, you know, I'm unhappy. I, I've been wanting to transition. I've been pushing that down. I, at one point, you know, I felt like if I didn't succeed as a musician, then I wouldn't have anything to show for my life. And now I have a much healthier mindset uh, because I'm actually trying to uh, love and honor myself uh, and my truth. But uh, yeah, that, that made me stop. Like I, I, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I was frustrated and I just, it wasn't even that I stopped doing it. It was that it wasn't bringing me any joy, but the whole time, mm -hmm. the whole break, the whole, even me at my most sad was I kept writing songs because it's something that I just have to do. It's just something. So I was like, well, I'm never going to get away from this. It, you, you, when you, you know, step back and you, you know, take care of yourself you started to realize okay well this isn't necessarily connected to music as much as it was with what i was struggling with internally and then healing that and going through that process and then okay now i'm at a good place where i can make this a part of my life again and i'm i'm glad i did because i do feel like a lifer at this point and i'm i'm proud to know that uh i'm still doing this i'm not i'm not a spring chicken michelle <laughs> Okay, I'm, I am neither a spring chicken. 
So you, you can't be a spring chicken forever, right? You can't. No. We're, we're going to our mature arc, the elder statesman arc. Beautiful swans. There we go. Right? Yeah, absolutely. The closest bird reference I can come up with right now. So, okay, uh, enough about birds. You know, writing songs, of course, is a is a form of self-expression and a form of, you know, kind of asserting your identity. And and we talked a bit about your transitioning after you moved back to Kansas City. So, you know, I, I'm sure there are parallels there. And I, I wonder, like, how much writing songs before you transition, like, did that did that make you think more as far as like, I really need to embrace my identity or I I knew that I was trans probably very early, probably around like six or seven, but I stuffed it down and I didn't want to face it. And for a lot of years, it was just, you know, that thing you you look at and, but then you close the door on it and you're like, oh, I couldn't possibly be. So like, I remember the early days where I was just making garage band demos in my basement with an acoustic guitar or piano, which is still an awesome way to do it today. But I remember as a kid starting doing it that way and really it hasn't changed. I I was writing about that stuff then. I was just being a lot more coy and uh, there was a lot more anger there. I I definitely think that I was angrier, but uh, I wasn't facing it head on. Hence probably why there's a lot of uh, howling and my music is it's very uh liberating but yeah yeah i was just kind of thinking of the parallels between those two things i mean it's just like do do you feel like it maybe helped you process any of that stuff like i know you were trying to escape from it which is a very natural thing i think it helps uh more it, it helped then i just didn't realize to the extent of what i was writing about or what I was putting in the songs but I was aware that I was aware of it and it was under the surface I think it's a little bit more out and about but it's never been my goal to only write about those things I think they definitely it definitely influences my perspective of the way I see the world and in turn maybe like the way I react to certain things but now I think it's uh, I, more than anything, I just feel more at home and who I am and I feel more comfortable and at ease and I don't feel as insecure or feel like I have to wear a mask. Uh, I felt like I had to be, I don't know, what's the word? Um, alpha. I used when I was a kid and younger, I felt like I had to be the alpha, but that was really just a mask for me to sort of protect myself because I didn't want people to get behind the armor because I was afraid that people wouldn't love me. 
And really it was because I wasn't loving myself. So now that, you know, I've sort of like turned that corner and like now it's just fun to play music. Now it's just fun to write songs. Now it's nice to have that perspective of age and experience to be able to write from and then still add my personality to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a degree of authenticity that I think people are also drawn to, whether they realize it or not. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate yeah. it. I did want to talk a bit more about your experience as a trans woman uh, musician, because like a few years mm-hmm. ago, I did, I did a series on women in music called Turning the Tables for 90.9 The Bridge. And at the time, mm-hmm. mainly was focused on cis women. And, and I really wanted to do something separate on transgender folks and non-binary folks, just because it's a, it's a different experience, you know. Sure, absolutely. You know, a lot of a lot of that series was me talking to other women just about being a woman in music. You know, we kind of talked about this even before uh, we started recording this podcast. Just like going to small towns, for instance, and and kind of just I don't know. Like for me, it's like I'll be walking into a place that I've never been before and already having my own preconceived notions of like, okay, well shit, we're going to the small town and right. I, I look like this, I'm a woman, I'm a person of color. This, this is a thing that I'm going to have to deal with. So I already go in with these expectations and it doesn't always turn out that way, fortunately, but a lot of times it does or, or anywhere you are really, you know, people right. are going to make comments, people are going to have preconceived notions of you. Are there things that you've noticed um, since you've transitioned? Well, I was saying that I, it's, you know, it took me, what, three years to, like, before I actually just uh, decided to, like, come back. And that first year with the creepy jingles, like, playing on stage, I was, I, I was pretty nervous just because I can normally walk down walk in you know walk into a grocery store and mind my own business and people don't think twice but I have this voice and uh that's authentic to me and I like my voice and I know that I have a particular range as far as where I can go with my personality and the way I make jokes and the way I sing I know where I'm at you know I kind of know what my ceiling is and it never, as much as I would love to have a more feminine voice, I don't. Like you're saying, I'm not uh, a cis woman. I don't have that experience. I am a trans woman. It's a completely different thing. There are parallels to that being that we are both women, but growing up with, you know, the, you know, that particular uh, gender roles that are put on you and everything, I, I felt like I had to play football. You know, I felt like I had to be tough and be a smart ass and when I was being my true self and I got on stage for the first you know year or so it was I'm being as naked and vulnerable as possible because I'm not only being vul- I've always been vulnerable in the sense that I'm like you know performing my art which is like you know personal to me uh, but the fact that I was doing it as myself a trans woman and wondering am i going to get rejected am i going to uh, how are people going to embrace this you know i don't want to be seen as 
just being trans, which is a, a, a big thing. Like I've had, I, I've heard random musicians tell friends that know me and it got back to me that like they thought that I was doing this just for attention. And uh, it's that like, it blows my mind that people would think that one, I'm, I'm that shallow as to, or that like, I'm going to get like, why would I like, why would I go out of my way to like torture myself for years or, or live in anguish, uh, you know, and it just doesn't make any sense. And that was like a painful reality of being a, an artist and an entertainer in a public forum where I was subjected to other people's opinions, not opinions like you're ugly, not opinions like uh, God hates you or any of that stuff. It was my attacking my character that like I would do something uh, to make my road easier. I'm like, how is being trans making my road easier? It's only making my road easier in the sense within myself but it doesn't necessarily make navigating the world easier. It makes it more challenging, but it was, it was uh, a, a reality to like, Oh, there are people out there that are going to have this opinion and it never occurred to me. And that was, that was really troubling and disturbing. It like, it, it really upset me when someone told me that. And of course my friend defended them. And of course they said it out of ignorance. They didn't know. But that's how I processed it is it was an attack on my character that I was so shallow that I would do this for attention. Uh, because if people know what the trans experience like, it's most of the time it's like you're trying not to get attention. I'm just I've just been trying to blend blend in, you know, and I, I don't blend in easy with my mouth you know i'm always like saying something but like i've come to terms with that's who i am and uh, i love myself and you know fuck other people that don't get it and have the wrong idea about me because they don't know me and you know you, you start to realize well there's a lot of you know ignorance fear you know miseducation uh, not as much information as there could be for the normal individual like when i was a kid like i'd been reading on the internet and I, I, I knew a lot more than like therapists and doctors did about when I was going into the trans experience because I've been reading these experiences and about this my whole entire life, you know. So it's, it's been really interesting. But, uh, you know, and then people taking things away from you because I'm a woman or a trans woman. Oh, they're only getting that spot because this, not because I'm good at what I do. Oh, because they're friends with them. And it's like, they don't even know. They don't even know how it works. And it's, it, that bugs me. But I think a lot of women deal with that. I think people of color deal with that. Um, it's bullshit. Like anytime, like minorities and mis underrepresented groups are spotlighted people want to take that cis white men want to take that chip out of our armor and that's really just just kind of like okay well it sounds like it's your problem yeah yeah i mean it's it's ignorance and it's people being fearful or threatened by something that's not that they're not used to you know at this point you know like i feel like cis het white men have uh kind of just ruled everything for so long and and so 
I, I guess for them, maybe it's a lot of people that don't get it. I feel like it's easier for them to go to those things. Like, that's not how this works. I mean, I wish that's how it works sometimes because then it's, yeah, it's, it's like, I, like I, everything's I, way easier. Well, it's kind of like we became artists because we were dealing with that feeling almost of like uh, uncertainty and alienation and like not having that sort of uh, representation or uh, hero, especially as a kid, like you can't like go out and tell people what you're feeling, you know? And when we were kids, we didn't have the internet as children anyway, we didn't have the internet. Like, so everything we knew was just the people around us and you're really conditioned to try to like fit into a particular mold. I mean, I was married when I was 24 years old, you know, I got married 24. Now I was, uh, eight years but still like I was young yeah. you know it's it's uh we this is a response of of feelings or like we we create because uh we we're sensitive kids you know at heart we're sensitive children that are just trying to deal with a crazy world where we don't fit in you know we're just trying to make room for ourselves and you know like you said people are threatened it's like I'm uh, a bold woman already and on top of that I'm a bold trans woman you know so like people don't like that people don't like that I have strong opinions and that I'm confident in myself and it's like fuck you I was not confident for a lot of my life so now you can just deal with it yeah I think about representation like I I hate when people are like hey here's female musician Michelle Bacon or here's transgender musician Jocelyn Nixon or whatever and you know like on one hand that can be very exploitative, I guess. Yes. Absolutely, 100%. But on the other hand, I do enjoy talking about the experience of, you know, me being a person of color or me being queer or whatever, just because I know when I was growing up, there wasn't any of that. None of that was ever presented to me. But, you know, there's like kind of a balance between those Mm -hmm. things because I, I did this survey a few months ago for mental health and there was a a trans woman that responded to it and and it was totally anonymous what this person told me or said in the survey was very eye-opening it was just like people don't want a trans person in their bands here in kansas city um yeah why aren't we doing better with that but you know it's like that takes understanding and learning and we do live in the midwest still right my hope is you know, people who are seeing people like you, people like me, whatever various categories we fall under, I, I hope that that helps them gain more confidence and like, oh, well, that person's doing that. And I identify with something, something. Right. Um, so maybe I can do that too. You know, that's, that's kind of the hope I see with like. Yeah, that's the thing that I, I really take solace in the fact that like, you know, we're supposed to be like the warriors, right? we're we're here to we're here to cut down the tall grass so the the kids that come after us have like an easier path they can see where they're going and that is an important role and labels are stupid we're ever changing we're always becoming but labels have annoyed me as far as like you know just calling ourselves the creepy jingles it's just two words that i like together but like we've been booked with like bands with like horror names and it's like it's just really it's just really lazy uh that to me too is like just as annoying though as you know um 
oh, we got to book them with other queer acts or, you know, which I don't mind because I usually like hanging out with, you know, like other uh, female fronted acts, which need to be seen and other queer acts. Uh, that's easy, you know, and fun. But it's also, I want that challenge of being able to play to a cis white male audience and win over any crowd. That's me as my goal as a performer uh, or as a writer is, I want to play in front of people who wouldn't normally go out of their way to see me, but like, that's about all getting your foot into the door, you know, going back to that. It's like, get my foot in with the door with the pop songs. And then eventually they'll read the words and be like, what have I been singing this whole time? That's, I, I want to get in people's cross space. Well, I think you have been. <laughs> Thank you. In a good way. <laughs> I hope so. Every one of these podcast episodes, I ask my guests to come in and kind of talk about something uh, in the music world, whether it's local or national or just kind of across the board, like something that they would like to see changed. And we've been talking about just like being a band and being labeled a certain way because you have a certain name or whatever, you know. Um, and what you had mentioned mm -hmm. kind of was just devaluation of music in general and how difficult it is for independent bands to get their name out there because they don't have as much money or the big machine behind them or whatever. So it, it's just insane to me that the, the, what some like art pieces go for versus what musicians do to not only put together a song, but a project like an album, the amount of money, time, energy, detail, that goes into creating these works of art to be able to be presented only to be like given away for, for 99 cents, which we only see like a penny on the dollar. And that to me, and like I actually have like a crazy idea, which I don't think makes sense right now, but I could see eventually a paradigm shifting where the only, the only way that we can put artists first again in my opinion, is by desaturating the market. You can get any song anywhere you go. And I think that's the problem now. It's available everywhere. And because of that, like, you have to pay all these artists where it's like in the future, I could see it being like, you know, you only get your movies through Netflix or whatever, or, you know, you only get these bands through Apple Music. You only get, you sign you're going to eventually artists are going to sign to these particular things, but it should be exclusive. There should be a one-stop shop for someone to come and get creepy jingles music because that adds value to what you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't think that 
it will happen anytime soon because it means everybody has to jump off the hamster wheel at the same time. And it's a scary thing because we all, we all want to be competing. We all want to be heard. We want our music to be out there. And that's why we're in the game that we're in now. But like, unless we can somehow create a sense of ex exclusivity for the listener, that's why like these Patreons are cool, but it should be like, you can only get, get it here. So do you think of that more as like, do you see it as more like some sort of vetting process for certain bands to be able to have their music there? I just see a day where labels disappear completely and you're releasing exclusively through Apple Music or exclusively through YouTube. And to me, I think that's the direction that it's going. But I think that only works if that's the only place that you can get it right. right now the model is the best model it can be with the rules that we're all playing by right mm -hmm. um i love uh i love uh jeff and high dive records you know they've uh taken a chance on us invested in us uh and i appreciate that and you know i want to do as much as i can to not only like help myself succeed but the the guys in my band succeed and uh for more attention to be brought to high dive records if i can you know because there are fantastic bands like full bloods coney ebony tusk drugs and addicts you know there's so many great artists and bands and i i just want to change from what it's currently been i mean because as much as i i, I really love high dive and I love that we have Manor Records. I love that we have Center Cut Records, uh, Record Machine, you know, like all the other countless labels. It's great that artists in our area and nationally have uh, independent businesses that are interested in working with them. But when we're playing against, uh, Marty Hillard said this, like when you're playing against like a big machine, if you're playing against like Doja Cat or Kesha or, you know, Kim Petras, these uh, artists and bands that have like a huge machine behind them, you cannot compete with like paying for a publicist. They don't want to do a three month campaign at, you know, uh, change $300. You know, they want to do thousands of dollars over a six month span and like, most bands, no matter how good you are, no matter how much support, no matter how much talent and you have behind you, you cannot keep up with that SEO marketing of like being in the top of the search engines, being pushed as that artist. You know, we don't have 30 grand lying around. We can't promote the next record for six months as much as we'd like to. So all our artists the artist response is for us to continue to make content, which continues to devalue what we're trying to uh, accomplish because we feel like we, that's the response. So we're constantly in this whole like cycle of working for nothing and that's the game. And I feel like we need to somehow change that or at least start talking about it. I 100% agree. And uh, this is the thing I've talked to a couple of the other artists on the podcast about, you know, like, I can't remember who it was now. It might've been Crystal, but she had talked a bit. Yeah, it was Crystal. She had talked a bit about like, you know, artists forming unions. And there are a couple labels out there that have started kind of doing that, you know? Um, 
uh, just putting the artists first. And of course, you know, you did mention High Dive, of course, and a lot of the other local mm -hmm. labels, they are trying to do that in their own little way. But, you know, it's kind of the same thing. They, they don't have countless amounts of money. Uh, I think a lot of people who aren't in the business, they don't really think about how much it takes. You know, it's like you, you have to get a PR campaign for your record and you have to get like a radio campaign. You get licensing, uh, you know, all so many things that cost so much money and take so many different kinds of connections that we, that we here in the Midwest may not probably don't have. Yeah. It's Especially just, after we've been pumping, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of our own money into equipment, gear, you know, yeah, getting the recording done. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mastering. Exactly. There's so much goes into it. it and it, it's crazy that like we're creating all this content as it's called now, but we're, we're creating art and it gets given away for, you know, you invest $5,000 into something and you get a cent back for one listen. And, you know, I guess, you know, it's not always hanging in your home as a piece of art, but to me, music is, we can't go without music. If music went tomorrow, everybody would like freak out. That's why it's just, it, it's mind blowing that this is, this art is so important to me and what we do as musicians is important to bring the world a soundtrack that they wouldn't have, you know, because we all have that natural heartbeat and that's always the thing that draws us back. And it's crazy to me that uh, it's not more revered. Right. It's so like, uh, it's so disposable. Like I've tried to get to the bottom of that. I'm like, why is it that, you know, you're talking about a piece of art, like a, a painting or whatever, you know, that, that can go for like millions and millions of dollars. And then you've got a song here on the other hand. It, maybe it's the intangibility of it. Maybe it's like, you know, I've talked to people about how the, the, the whole like, uh, I can't pay you, but I can give you exposure sort of shit. Yeah. Which right. is every musician's favorite thing to hear. But, you know, it's like, I, I think that a lot of people maybe just don't get it. Like they want to be entertained, you know, like there's been so many times I've, I've declined to play shows because there's like somebody that like, Hey, I've got a thousand dollars. I want to have a band play in my parking lot. You know, I want to throw a festival. I don't actually have any money for you, but I want to be entertained. I want you. And, and that's why people are like, when you're playing a show, somebody's going to yell out Freebird or something. Or like, like, I demand that you play a cover right now. I don't know if you know it, but you could probably play it because you're a musician, right? You know, it's like, how many times <laughs> have you been on stage and somebody will yell a cover at you that they want to hear? I'm like, do you just think that we know them already? Like, are we just here? Like, I, I don't know if it's just, it's just a devaluation of the individual too. It's mm -hmm. so, you just think we're like monkeys up here here to entertain you and of course there is an element of that as performers we do want to entertain people and we want to connect with people but i'm just kind of speculating like yeah eventually we're just going to have to sell ourselves to private private yeah. buyers and i'll be an nft girl yeah absolutely i'm probably just going to become like a like a chuck e cheese animatronic <laughs> <laughs> you'd be great at that i think i'd be really very consistent uh, yeah yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, 
it always appalls me when I when it happens to me or when I talk to other artists. Uh, it's not really that shocking at this point, but it's just like that's been a big thing as far as over the last couple of years is like finally going. You know what? I was go with the flow for so many years, but it's like motherfucker. Like I've been. I spent my whole life busting my ass towards this one goal. Like I'm, I'm like getting close to like 40, you know, in a couple months. And it's like, I'm ready to be paid for my hard work and for what I think is good. And if you don't want to pay me, then you better be a real good friend. Cause like, I don't have, I don't have any interest in wasting my time. Right. For, for you because again that goes back into devaluing ourselves as artists and i think we just need to put things more in place to be able to like protect ourselves and young artists need to know that you get more when you stand up for yourself yes you're going to lose some because you stand up for yourself but you're going to gain a lot more in the long run if yeah. you do you know once I learned to value myself as an artist, that really changed things for me and for the bands that I was in. It's a very different perspective than a lot of artists, I feel like. It's just like, okay, yeah, I'll play for a pitcher of PBR. That's fine. At least I get to play the show. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no. Once you get to, I mean, of course, you start at a certain place, but once you've yeah. paid your dues, per se, it's like, no, I... I'm doing this. I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. I should get what I deserve. Well, sometimes people can't pay you because we all kind of live under that same. Right. You know, it's like we've got these great venues locally that are struggling. Yeah. That's a problem too. And it's, it's not their fault either. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a solution, but, but I do think that's a, it's a great conversation to have and to continue having, you know, Let's just stop. Let's just stop doing it. Stop. Let's what? teach them all. Let's teach them all a lesson and never do it again. Okay, I'm done. You people had your chance. Not anymore. There's no more music. Too bad. So sad. The shop's closed up. <laughs> to talk about the creepy jiggles because we have not done that yet you have your debut full length coming out it's called take me up my wordplay and i i would love for you to talk a little bit about the process of that i know you you all went to a lake house in the lake of the ozarks right yeah um i mean there are songs that are you know 10 years old that are their songs from you know last year uh so it kind of runs the gamut of uh, whenever i'm wanting to make a record and I'm building a collection of songs, I just sort of look for themes and a tone that sort of go together. I want it to look like a color palette. You know, I want that sort of like being influenced by the Beatles. I want those sort of like that range and revolver as much as I can within like a rock and roll pop context within what we can do. So 
I try to choose whatever songs to me like work with each other and they're the best sort of like collection, um, the, the best friends. Um, and then from there, uh, once I decided kind of what we wanted to do, we'd been rehearsing a lot of them and we wanted to do something different. And I think Nick, uh, our drummer, had the idea to go to a lake house because we were talking about like Elton John and like the Honky Chateau doing that, like leaving your sort of comfort zone in space. And we thought, oh, that's kind of fun. That's like a little adventure. It's a little band bonding trip. So we went to the Lake of the Ozarks and rented a cabin for four days and we made our engineers at Cames drag his whole studio. <laughs> we made him drag his whole studio. God love him. He did it. And uh, we packed the studio and just moved into this house only for four days. And we worked like 10 to 12 hour days, but we, we had a blast and it was really fun. And it was like summer camp, you know, Andrew, uh, Woody, our bass player, was making breakfast every morning for us, and there was, uh, you know, communal dinner, and uh, it was a blast. We got to go out and look at the beautiful, like, lake. It, it was a really good time. It was the, the most fun I've ever had making a record. I would definitely say that. That's actually not an experience I've ever had. You know, like every every band that I've been in, you know, we've recorded here in town, and I've had really great experiences doing that, but it's it's totally like you said, it's a bonding experience um, to go away from your element and all be in a place together and spending all your time together, you know, just being like a little family and working together, hashing out all these songs. And it's great that, I mean, it must've worked out because you're still a band, right? <laughs> we still love each other through, through all the struggle. That's awesome. So did you already have the album, like you already had the songs fully fleshed out or... Did you kind of woodshed them? I bring, I, my job is sort of to, or at least I consider it to be my job is to bring the song as like, I usually know what, you know, verse, chorus, bridge. I usually have uh, the lyrics written. On this record, I had five songs that I hadn't finished. Uh, and on the way down, I was writing, I wrote lyrics to the five different songs on the way down to the Ozarks, knowing that we were going to have to record. Because um, I, I like that pressure of my back being up against the wall and just being able to like do it when I have to do it because I've got ADHD and I sometimes have to be prodded to have an end goal to get something done. But the guys all bring, you know, it, it's definitely a collaboration between everybody in the group as far as the production arrangement, like Nick, makes his drums you know like he asked me if i like things and we'll maybe like tinker together and he'll bounce ideas off me but nick knows what he's doing and i trust him as a musician and the same with like andrew and his bass lines and travis and his guitar lines i usually always have like a little spot that i in my songs that i go okay this is where trav can go off here um and he just sort of takes it from there. And I mean, there might be collaboration as far as like when we're um, bouncing the ideas, like, what do you think of this? And they're uh, gracious in the sense that they give me that respect to be able to check in, like, it's your song. What do you think? Do you like this? Uh, so I, I'm really blessed to get to play with great musicians that know what they're doing. And uh, they're my best friends and my family. So. Uh, it's easy to trust them to sort of do what they do. And uh, I can't play bass like, uh, you know, Andrew, I can't play drums like 
Nick uh, and I can't play guitar like Trav. So I just trust them to do their thing and they're all great musicians. So that's definitely what makes it the creepy jingles. Yeah. And that's, that's like the best possible scenario, you know, playing with people that you love who you can trust as professionals too. Yeah. I certainly feel very, very fortunate. Like I think about it sometimes and, you know, like get frustrated, like everybody does, but like, I, I really think I have a, uh, a good thing going with these guys and I feel very blessed to be able to have them in my life and uh, doing this with me because it's it's very strange for you know for people you know that are in their 30s early 40s to all be working together towards a singular vision and you know like w- one vision is powerful but whenever you put four people together it magnifies that vision and makes it stronger and you know we all invest in the band we try to take as little money as possible. We try to uh, invest in ourselves and do as much as we can uh, on our own because that's just the pride that we all have for what we're working on. Mm-hmm. And then I did want to mention you all put a single out in November that I premiered on the bridge called Throwing in the Femme Fatale. And that was one of my favorite singles of 2021. I know that that didn't make your album. It was kind of, you said it was kind of one of the, it just didn't necessarily fit on the album right like like i was saying like i have an idea as far as a group of songs that work together and it just sort of felt like it had too much personality to be sort of shoehorned in with the rest of them well it needed its own little pace yeah it's it's such a good song and i think that i have not heard the album yet but if it's anything like that it's gonna be great it's all over the place yeah looking forward for you to hear it looking forward to sharing it with everybody i've been sitting on it for what feels like a couple years now because we started it i think right around the time the ep was released in 2019 and we started it with one engineer and decided it just wasn't what we wanted to do we wanted to go bigger we kind of felt like the lo-fi sound was getting played out and that everybody was kind of doing that and we wanted to do just the opposite so we wanted something a little bit more bombastic and uh, we started over. Uh, we didn't get really started and we waited almost like a year and a half to start over again. And then now it's been sitting on it for a year with the uh, pandemic and with the uh, COVID pushing back vinyl production and all kinds of things. It's been a lesson in patience for sure. Yes. Um, I- I feel like I, I told somebody that I feel like I've been pregnant for a couple of years now and I'm just ready to have this baby. Right. I did want to say one more thing about the record, actually. Your last EP or the debut EP, that was definitely more of a lo-fi thing and I really enjoyed it. But I do think, you know, the more I've seen you all play over the past couple of years and especially or the last show I saw you at was the Frog Pond release show and it was such a great night and and i do think that like it seems like it's going to be a really good representation of how you translate to a live audience yeah i hope so i mean we've grown up a lot since the ep as a band and you know it's not just a reason to like not do lo-fi because everybody else is doing it although i do think that's a good reason to do anything is to be different than everybody else it's to grow with that capacity of like the band, you know, it just, it felt like, okay, let's start small. And then we've got some place to go with it, but we, we can't stay there, especially when we haven't had a release 
uh, like a physical release for a couple years now. Like it, it just has to be bigger. It has to be better. It has to be better. So um, that's the hopes with this is, you know, people like it and it is a little bit more rep- representative of who we are as a band today and who we, who we want to become in the future, you know, but who knows, you know, like the next record could be uh, just all, all of us on like, you know, horns uh and uh hitting trash cans we'll see be like stomp 2.0 <laughs> we can't we can't say stomp though because no, we don't get, have the like yeah, you'll definitely get sued. So i just i just want to say thank you michelle for having me on today and appreciate all the support and love that you've shown us uh thanks for having us yeah always but no as far as uh you know, promoting anything else. No, just uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing it when I can. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn, for joining me. And again, the Creepy Jingles will be releasing Take Me Out My Wordplay next Friday, March 25th. You can grab a record online at High Dive Records' Bandcamp page, or you can join them live as they play next Friday at the Rhino in North Kansas City, and then Saturday at the Replay Lounge in Lawrence. Thanks to Jocelyn for providing all the songs you heard in this podcast. Bookending the show is The Creepy Jingles with Throwing in the Femme Fatale, followed by English Major, I Can Follow Through, and another English Major song, Somebody's Pulling Our Strings. Then The Creepy Jingles' new song, Nicotine Mom, followed by Trojan Horse Girl. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is actually going to be my last podcast episode here, so I want to give a huge shout-out to Center Cut Records, to Patrick Spray and Chris Mowry for their support. And thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in and listened to all of these episodes. There is so much musical talent in Kansas City, and I'm really happy I've gotten to share some stories from a few of those folks here. So thanks again, and I will see you next time.